Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The New Testament uses an expression that we are all familiar with. It says, the Lord's Day. So, if I were to say to you uh, something about the Lord's Day, you would probably immediately think of the fact that God's children on that day are going to go visit God's house. And that's what you normally think of about the Lord's Day. Well, the Old Testament has an expression similar to that. It talks about the day of the Lord. Now, if the Lord's Day is the day that God's children visits his house, the day of the Lord in the Old Testament, is the exact opposite. It is the day the Lord pays a visit. So let me take a minute and see if I can define the expression, the day of the Lord. What do we mean that he's going to pay a visit? Well, in the first place, I would say that there are scholars, Bible scholars, who have said that the expression, the day of the Lord, was a common, popular expression in the ancient world, used of a warrior king who would commence uh, and consume an entire military campaign on a single day. Now, that is not what the scripture means by it, but that's the background of it. The Old Testament use to say the day of the Lord is in the first place talking about the Lord doing something, not a king. And then it says the day of the Lord, which seems to imply that it's going to happen in one single day, which apparently the popular expression meant. But there are several passages of scripture where this expression is used and it becomes obvious that it's more than just one day. The day is used in the sense of, a, say, a short period of time versus a month or a year. So if I were going to come up with a definition of the day of the Lord, I would simply say it is a short period of time when the Lord intervenes in human affairs. Now, what goes a little beyond that is what becomes very interesting. Why is he intervening? What is he intervening to do? And the answer becomes very obvious, because in the vast majority of passages where the expression appears, he is intervening in human affairs to judge. But there's more. There are passages that suggests that the day of the Lord is the day the Lord intervenes in human affairs to not just judge, but to bless. So I would uh, summarize all of that and say that a definition of the day of the Lord 
is that it is a short period of time when the Lord intervenes in human affairs with either judgment or blessing. That is the definition of the little expression, the day of the Lord. Now, this is an important subject. Uh, it's not one we have heard much about, but it is an important subject. There are two books in the Old Testament whose subject is the day of the Lord. One is the book of Joel, and the other is the book of Zephaniah. Now think about that for a minute. We have 66 books in the Bible, and two of them, two of the 66, have as their subject the day of the Lord. Now that alone should tell us that this is an important subject. At least God thinks it is an important subject. He dedicated two of the books in the Bible to it. Now, what I propose to do is look at the book of Zephaniah. Uh, that's probably not a book you've looked at much or recently. So let me suggest that you turn to the table of contents and find the book of Zephaniah toward the end of the Old Testament. Find what page it's on and turn to Zephaniah. And while you're doing that, let me point out Zephaniah's use of the term the day of the Lord. The expression the day of the Lord appears in the book of Zephaniah nine times. On top of that, there is the little expression that day or the day, which is shorthand for the day of the Lord. And those expressions appear 20 times in the book of Zephaniah. So the day of the Lord is referred to 29 times in three chapters. It is referred to in this book more than any other book of the Bible. Joel has as its subject the day of the Lord, but it doesn't mention it as much as Zephaniah. So I want us to go through this book, the three chapters of it, and particularly notice what we can learn about the day of the Lord. Here's the question. What does Zephaniah say about the day of the Lord, and of what spiritual value is that to us? All right? By now, I trust you have found Zephaniah. You got it? All right, I'm going to go through the whole first chapter and then some in this session, but I'm going to go through it a little bit at a time rather than just read the whole thing. So let me start out by saying that in the first three verses, uh, there is a little introductory kind of paragraph. Uh, look at verse 1. The word of the Lord, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gadaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, the king of Judah. Now, all this verse is doing is identifying the author. But it does it in a very unusual way. 
there's no other book in the Bible that does it quite like this. It's not unusual for some prophet to say he's the son of, but in this case, Zephaniah goes back four generations. There's no other prophet in the minor prophets or the major prophets that go back that far to identify who he is. So why would he do that? Well, he goes all the way back to Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was a king. These others were not. So in essence, what he's telling us is that he was from royalty. He was from the royal line. Now, the other thing verse 1 tells us is that he lived in the days of Josiah, who was also a king. Now, because he says in the days of Josiah, we know the date of this book. The date of this book is roughly somewhere around 630 to 625 B.C. Now, uh, uh, this becomes important later, but just sort of peg in your mind 625. The northern kingdom has already been conquered. The southern kingdom has not yet been conquered. The southern kingdom doesn't get conquered until 605. There were three invasions, 597 and 586. So this is roughly 20 years before that invasion, which was a judgment. So Zephaniah opens the book by telling you who he is and when he lived. That's the point of verse 1. Now look at verses 2 and 3. He said, I will utterly consume everything. From the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume men and beasts. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. Wow. He comes out swinging. And obviously... The Lord is coming to judge. Uh, matter of fact, in verse 2, he says, from the face of the land. In verse 3, I will cut off man from the face of the land. That little word land uh, is often interpreted to mean the earth. Not just because that's the meaning of the word, but because of the context of these two verses. It sounds like God is going to judge the whole earth, which is exactly what this is talking about. He is coming to judge the world. Now, I said a minute ago that the subject of this book is the day of the Lord, and the very definition of the day of the Lord is he comes to intervene in human affairs to judge. So the first thing that Zephaniah says is the Lord is coming to judge the world. Now, this hasn't happened yet. Certainly not the way he's describing it here. So this is prophetic, even from our point of view. This hasn't happened yet. 
But there's coming a day when the Lord is going to judge the world. Now, let me point out a few details. I want you to look at um, verse 3. I will consume man and beast, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, and stumbling blocks among the wicked. What's interesting is this is the reverse order of the creation in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, the fish were created first, then the birds of the air, then the beast of the field, and then man. He reverses that and says God is going to consume, he's going to destroy people and beasts, birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea. The reference to stumbling blocks among the wicked is probably a reference to idols that caused people to stumble. I will cut off man from the earth, says the Lord. Now this sounds like it is total and complete. However, if we keep reading the book, and we're going to go through it, when we get to chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, we will see that a remnant will survive. So that indicates that this is a limited destruction of the earth. But now I said it was prophetic, it's future. So many Bible teachers who take this at face value would say that this is probably a reference to the coming tribulation which comes just before the second coming of Christ. In other words, the amplification of these two verses is the book of Revelation, chapters uh, 8, or actually 6 through 18. So the first thing he says in this passage is there's coming a time when the Lord is going to judge the world. Now later in this chapter, he will identify this as the day of the Lord. At this point, he just opens with the burst of proclamation that the Lord is going to judge the world. Now, look at verse 4. He says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Ah, these uh, passages are in contrast to one another. 2 and 3 says, from the land, from the earth. And verse 4 says, but I'm now going to talk about Judah and Jerusalem. So beginning in verse 4, going through the rest of this chapter and spilling over into the first three verses of the next chapter, the subject is judging Judah and Jerusalem. Which perhaps, given the fact that he's just talked about judging the world, is a prefiguring of what's going to happen when he judges the world. In other words, what's the connection between saying he's going to judge the world one minute, he's going to judge Judah and Jerusalem on the other, and perhaps uh, the connection is that this judgment is a prefiguring of what is to come. Many have studied this passage 
and concluded that that is the case. Now, beginning at verse 4 and going through verse 9, Zephaniah is going to give us the causes of judgment. Why did God judge Judah and Jerusalem? Which he did in those three invasions by the Babylonians that I mentioned a minute ago. 605, 597, 586. And the final judgment was in 586. And that's when a whole bunch of people got carried to Babylon, including Daniel and Ezekiel, as well as Jeremiah. So, why did he do that? Why did he judge Israel? Uh, in this case, the southern kingdom. Well, in this passage, he gives us five reasons why he judged them. Look at verse 4. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Babel from this place, the names of the idolatrous priest with the pagan priest. So the first thing he says is, I am going to judge because the priests are idolatrous. And he mentions two kinds of priests in this verse. There is the priest of Baal, that's an idol, and then the names of the idolatrous priests, those are priests who served Baal, with pagan, uh, I'm sorry, those are the names of Jewish priests, because he says, and with pagan priests. So the two classes of priests mentioned in verse 4 are the priests who were pagan and served Baal, and some of the Jewish priests who were serving Baal. Unbelievable. The priests were contaminated. Those whose job it was to teach the Mosaic law, that was their job. Now, we think of the priests as those who offered sacrifices, and they did that, but they were also commissioned to teach the Scripture. And so God says, the very people who are to teach the Scripture are the ones I'm going to judge because they aren't serving me, they're serving an idol, in this case, Baal. I don't have the time, but it would sure be interesting to talk about the fact, is this a problem today? Is it a problem? Do preachers stray from teaching the Bible? You think? Matter of fact, Paul says that Satan is an angel of light. So you're just as liable to find a satanic, demonic, and I mean by that they're teaching stuff that isn't the scripture, in the pulpit as you are a bar. Satan doesn't bother with the people in the bar. They manage to get drunk by themselves. What he does is use preachers that are camouflaged as angels of light, but they're not teaching the word of God. I gave up listening to Christian radio a long time. I used to be on the radio, but I gave up listening to it. And the other day, I succumbed and could only take about five minutes. The man was so far off from the scripture, I thought, let me go listen to something else. Well, God says, there's coming a day 
Judah, when I'm going to judge. Now, when was this written? I gave you the date, remember? You forgot that already. 625. And when does it happen? About 20 years later was the first invasion of Nebuchadnezzar. So, he's saying, I'm doing it because the leaders are wrong. All right, that's the first thing he says. I want to talk about verse 5 for a second. He says, whose worship the host of heaven on the housetops and those who swear and swear oaths by the Lord and who also swear by Mount Milcom. Now, this is just a very, very fascinating verse. Actually, what he's now saying is, in verse 4, he was after the idolatrous priest. In verse 5, he's after the idolaters. So as pulpit, so pew. In the pulpit, so to speak, they were worshiping uh, the pagans. So in the pew, they followed suit. But notice what he says. They worship the host of heaven on the housetops. Now this is a reference to astronomy. Uh, I'm sorry, astrology. Uh, do, you, do you see the fortune tellers? Have they prolificated? Are there any in this neighborhood? Can you go anywhere in Southern California and not see them? Well, it's not exactly what this is talking about, but it's very close. They're looking to the host of heaven. They're worshiping the host of heaven, the sun and the moon and the stars, and they're trying to, but they worship the host of heaven. That's the first class. Then who worship and swear by oaths of the Lord, but they also swear by Milcom. Milcom is an idol. As a matter of fact, Solomon built a shrine to that idol. But what is fascinating to me is it says, they worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear. Did you see that? Is it possible to worship the Lord one minute and an idol the next? That's pretty radical, isn't it? Is that possible? That's what that text is saying. Now, let me just tell you that um, I was on the mission field, happened to be in Taiwan, and a missionary, and I got into a pretty heavy conversation, and she said to me that there were Christians who still kept their idols. They got converted but they still had their little idols that they gave food to in their house. They had a little shrine in their house. I was horrified. Um, but it happens. Could it happen in America? Could it happen today? Could it happen in churches? Well, Paul says uh, covetousness, which is idolatry. And he listed as one of the sins Christians commit. At the end of the little book of 1 John, John says, keep yourself from idols. And whether they're literal wooden idols or figurative idols, it's idolatry. So can a Christian commit idolatry? 
Absolutely. And so God says, I'm going to judge those people who worship me one minute and an idol the next. Amazing stuff. Look at verse 6. He says in verse 6, Those who turn back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. Now, he's talked about idolatrous priests. He's talked about idolaters other than priests. And now, I'm going to say in verse 6, he's talking about people who are spiritually indifferent. He says they have turned back from following the Lord. That's one group. They have not sought the Lord. That's the second group. And they have not inquired of him, which is probably a reference to prayer. But all of this is simply saying that they are unconcerned about spiritual things. Now notice, um, he, he, there's, there's a difference between the idolaters of verse 5 and the spiritually indifferent in verse 6. In verse 5, he says, those who worship the host of heaven. In verse 6, he says, those who have turned back from. So these are two different groups of people. Verse 5 starts with those, and verse 6 starts with those. So he lists being, I'm saying, spiritually indifferent, turning back from the Lord, just not seeking him, just not praying. He lists being spiritually indifferent in the same list of people who are idolaters. I'm reminded of uh, going through 1 Peter, which I'm doing on Sunday morning. And we looked at a verse where Peter says, don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, and a busybody. It's 1 Peter 4, I think it's verse 15. Imagine, murder, stealing, evil, and being a busybody. He puts it all together. And something similar is happening in this verse. We tend to categorize sin as big sin and little sin. And there are some sins that are more serious than others, but they're sin. And that's the way Peter treats it, and that's the way Zephaniah treats it. Now, at this point, he doesn't list another sin. He sort of pauses and says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, verse 7. For the day of the Lord is at hand, and the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, and he has invited guests. Now, for the first time, he uses the expression, the day of the Lord. As if to say, everything I've just described to you is the day of the Lord. It's the day God is going to intervene with judgment. God is going to judge. Then he says this, that day is at hand. It's pretty near. By the way, does that expression remind you of anything? Um uh, that expression is used in the New Testament, especially in the Gospels, where Jesus comes, John the Baptist comes, others preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It means it's coming, folks. It's pretty close. It could be any minute, and it could be a little ways away, but it's coming. 
and it's pretty close. So, in light of the fact that the day of God's judgment, the day of the Lord, is coming, you just be silent. I think that's another way of saying, don't be critical. Just stand in awe in the presence of God. And then he says this, the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guest. Now the sacrifice, he's using this figuratively, are his children. And it's as if he's preparing a sacrifice of them because they're going to be killed. The penalty of sin is death in this case. And he says, and he's invited the guest. And this is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians that have come to slaughter them. It's pretty severe. But that's the penalty of sin. And I'm talking about physical death. He's talking about his children and the punishment there for this idolatry and spiritual indifference is physical death. Um, in the book of 1 Corinthians... We're told that some were partaking of the Lord's Supper in an unworthily manner. Remember that passage? 1 Corinthians 11. At the end he says, and for this reason some are weak, some are sick, and some are asleep, which is a metaphor for dead. That the Lord said, because you have mistreated the Lord's table, they were getting drunk. It was a meal, and they were getting drunk, according to that passage. And they were being selfish and being gluttonous, gorging food without helping others who were hungry. And he says, you've made an abomination out of the Lord's table, and for that reason, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead. So the wages of sin death, and that's exactly what verse 7 is saying. Then he goes back to describing uh, the causes. He says in verse 8, it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the king's children, and all such are clothed with foreign apparel. Now what is he talking about? Well, uh, we have to explain several of these phrases, but He's simply saying that there's all kinds of iniquity going on. And he lists some of them. Uh, he says, I will punish the princes and the king's children. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this, but uh, he lived in the day of uh, Josiah. And a few years later, there was another king, one of the last, and sure enough, all of his children were punished, some of them by Nebuchadnezzar. Those who heap over thresholds, and to heap over a threshold is probably a figurative way of talking of invading a house or robbing a house, and some suggest that they did that so they could take what they found and give it to idols. Then he says, and they filled their master's houses with, I, I, I skipped down to verse 9, excuse me. And all such are clothed with foreign apparel. Well, I can imagine some preachers having a heyday with that verse. God's chastening them for what they wear. Um, 
but that's not exactly what's going on here. In the Mosaic law, they were to wear clothes that included a blue tassel. And apparently what's going on at this point is that they've given up wearing that required mosaic garb, and in so doing they are becoming like their pagan neighbors. So this is a spiritual issue. By the way, uh, we live in a community where you, if you were sitting around here on Saturday, you would see Jewish people walking to the synagogue, and they have little strings down there, down the side of the pants or something. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. They're not doing what God told them to do in wearing that symbolic part of clothing. So that's the point. And again, it's just another reference to iniquity. There's one more. In verse 9 he says, In that day I will punish those who leap over thresholds. I skipped, got ahead of myself. That is, they're stealing. And who fill their uh, master's houses with violence and deceit. And so this again is the kind of thing that's causing him to judge. They're just injustice that they're doing to one another. Uh, they're stealing stuff. They're deceiving in doing it. They're creating violence to do it. And then they're offering that stuff to idols. So my point is this. Verse 4 says this is a judgment against Judah and Jerusalem, right? And, he says, here are the reasons I'm going to judge them. Their priests are idolatrous. The people are idolatrous. And then there are those who are not necessarily idolatrous, they're just spiritually indifferent. And then there are people who are committing all kinds of iniquity Stealing is included. Disobeying the Lord is included. Injustice is included. So, four to nine are the causes of the judgment of the day of the Lord. Beginning in verse 10 and going through the rest of the chapter, he talks about the crying that's going to result. So he says in verse 10, And there shall be on that day, says the Lord, the sound of mourning cry, from the fish gate, and a wailing from the second quarter, and a loud crushing from the hills. Now all he's doing is describing the various sections of Jerusalem. And what he's saying in essence is, I'm going to judge the whole city. Back in verse 4, he said he was going to judge Jerusalem. And now he's saying, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it all the way, from the fish gate all the way down to the hills. Then he says in verse 11, Wail, you inhabitants of Machish, and all the merchant peoples are cut down, and those who handle money are cut off. Now he's talking about specifically the business district. That's the name of the place. Uh, that he refers to in verse 11, and the merchants are a reference to that, and those who handle money. So he is specifically addressing the merchants, the business district. Verse 12, and it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with the lamp and punish the men uh, who are settled in complacency. 
Whoa! Earlier, I suggested that he was describing people who are indifferent to spiritual things. They are not following the Lord. They are not seeking the Lord. They're not inquiring of the Lord. Remember that? Now, that was verse 6, by the way. Now he's saying, and they're just complacent. So he's saying, those are the people that are going to be judged. The whole city, and he he specifically, mentions the merchants who are complacent. They are so busy making money, they have gotten complacent about spiritual things. That's what's going on. He says in verse 12, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. Now they are complacent because they don't think that God is going to judge them. So they're not worried. God's, God's not going to do this. Don't worry. Uh, the Lord's not going to come back today, so you know, or tomorrow, or probably next month. So just you know, go get as much money as you can. Don't worry about spiritual things. That's their complacency. So he goes on to say, um, verse 13, Therefore their goods shall become booty. Now, these are the merchants who are just trying to live to make money. And he says their goods, all this wealth they've accumulated, is going to be booty. Now, what's that referring to? Well, as I told you, this is a reference to uh, to the invasion of the Babylonians led by Nebuchadnezzar, and their goods are going to become the plunder and booty of the Babylonians. So, you're all busy making money? That's what's going to happen to it. Verse 13, and their houses a desolation, and they shall build houses but not inhabit them. So the houses they already have are going to be destroyed, and some of them are making so much money they're going to build new houses, but you're not going to be able to finish it because the, Lord, the Lord's going to let the Babylonians come in and destroy them before you can finish it. They shall plant vineyards, but they shall not drink the wine. So they're making all this money, they're building houses, they're planting vineyards, and he says, you're not going to enjoy it because the Babylonians are going to come and destroy it before you can enjoy it. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. Now this is another reference to the day of the Lord, only now it's called the great day of the Lord. And once again he repeats, it's near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry. So he listed the whole city. He then focused on the merchants. And now he focuses on the mighty men. And he says this day of the Lord, this judgment that's coming, is going to affect the high and mighty men. He says in verse 15, that day is a day of wrath. It's a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Now what he's done here is he's used five couplets to describe utter devastation. There's going to be trouble and distress. Both those words express an anguish. There's going to be devastation and desolation. That's physical destruction. 
There's going to be darkness and gloom, a time of terror. There's going to be clouds and thick darkness, a time of depression. Trumpets will sound against fortified cities. They did not listen to the trumpets that summoned them to serve the Lord on holy days, and now they will hear the trumpet of a coming battle. So he's simply describing the fact that the whole city, the merchants, the mighty men, are going to wail when they see the destruction. And he ends in verse 17 by saying, I will bring distress upon the men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood should be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuge. The penalty is death. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. But the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy, for he will make speedy riddance of those who dwell in the land. So in these last verses, he's just saying, you know what? You are out busy making money, but when judgment comes, it's not going to help you. Your silver and your gold is not going to deliver you. Verse 18, it's the day of the Lord's wrath. I keep saying, he refers over and over and over and over again to the day of the Lord. Please note that verse 18 calls the day of the Lord the day of the Lord's wrath poured out against sin. We ran through that chapter pretty quick. The message, real simple. The Lord is going to come. It's near. It's called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is the day of judgment. And in this chapter, he says he's going to judge the world, Judah, and Jerusalem. Got it? What's the conclusion? Now look at chapter 2, verse 1. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility, that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Here is the conclusion. Verse 2, gather yourselves together. That apparently is a reference to you need to have an assembly where you're going to consider your spiritual situation and you need to repent. That's the point of verse 1. And you need to do it, verse 2, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. Get together now and seek the Lord. Matter of fact, he says that in verse 3. Seek the Lord. Look at verse 3 in the middle. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. So instead of all this 
sin that you've been wallowing around in, the idolatry, the injustice, the indifference, the complacency, seek the Lord and seek His righteousness and seek some humility. I want you to see the end of verse 3. That it may that it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. He says, look, if you seek me and righteousness and humility instead of all this sin and transgression, then when the day of the Lord's judgment shall come, you'll be hidden. You'll be saved. You'll be secure. You won't undergo the judgment that the nation is about to face at the hands of the Babylonians. All right. Let me put chapter 1 and the first verses of chapter 2 together. If I were going to sum up this whole passage, I would say this. Since the coming of the day of the Lord to judge sin is near, and it's going to cause great grief, which, by the way, may be a foreshadowing of the judgment that's going to come even in our future, then you need to repent and seek the Lord and seek righteousness and seek humility. Does this have any application to us? Oh, I'm not living in the ancient world and didn't live in Jerusalem this apply to us? Yeah. Well, the principle certainly does. Um, matter of fact, I looked at this passage again, and I thought to myself, wow, <laughs> this really parallels the book of Revelation. The subject of the book of Revelation is Jesus is judge. Matter of fact, it opens by saying this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the uncovering of Jesus. Matthew reveals him as king. Mark reveals him as servant. Luke reveals him as the son of man. John reveals him as the son of God. And the book of Revelation reveals him as the judge. Chapter 1 is a picture of Jesus as judge. That's it. And he tells John, write down the things you see. That's Jesus as judge. Write down the things that are that's chapters 2 and 3. And then write down the things that will be hereafter. That's beginning in 4 and going all the way through the rest of the book. Well, what's 2 and 3? God judges the church. It's the seven letters to the seven churches. And God is judging them. And then from the rest of the book, 4 to the rest of the book, chapter 22, God judges the world. Well, that's the same kind of thing that's happening here only it's a little reversed. He starts with the world and then he judges his people. The point is this. There's a judgment coming. God is going to judge the world. And God is going to judge us. In our case, it could be in this life, there is divine discipline when we step out of line. And it could also be at the judgment seat of Christ. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ not to determine heaven and hell, that's determined when you trust Christ, but to determine the reward that you get. You've heard me teach that many times. But the point is, 
There's a judgment coming. The day of the Lord, which is used in the New Testament of the tribulation period. I'll get to more about that later. So, the day of the Lord is coming. What should we do? Seek the Lord now. Seek righteousness and humility now so that you may be hidden when the day of his wrath shall come. Now, let me ask a question. Zephaniah preached, do this to escape. Did they escape? Yes and no. I've already told you He's predicting the coming judgment of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, and that it happened in three different ways, in 605, 597, and 586. But some were hidden. This did work for some. As a matter of fact, I mentioned that Solomon erected an altar to an idol. I've also talked about Josiah, some, well, there's no question about the fact that Josiah instituted some reforms. And it has been suggested that he did things like tear down some of those idols, that that may have been in response to Zephaniah's preaching. If that's the case, then what happened is uh, Solomon built that idol, that altar. They were worshiping it. Zephaniah came along, preached against it, and some heard him. And one of those was the king, Josiah, and he instituted reforms, and some of the people got it. So some of the people escaped the judgment that came on Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. So God protected those from destruction when the Babylonians invaded, because they did what this passage says, they sought the Lord. Got it? Got it. Let me put it all like this. Did you ever have company come? And what did you do if company was coming? Let me suggest you cleaned house. You ever done that? Who hasn't? Company's coming. We need to clean house. In the most simple terms I can put it, that's what this passage is teaching. The Lord is coming, called the day of the Lord. So maybe what we should do is clean house by seeking the Lord righteousness, and humility. Father, thank you for this reminder that we're accountable to you. Reminder that we shouldn't be indifferent or complacent, but that we should be seeking righteousness and humility, serving you, instead of just being about the business of earning money. Thank you for this reminder. In Jesus' name.